0: Racial injustice is a scourge on this nation, and the black community has felt it for generations. We have an obligation to do something about it. Whether it's canceling student debt, increasing the minimum wage, or investing in black-owned businesses, the black community deserves so much better. I'm Nina Turner, and I'm running for Congress to do something about it. I'm Omar Moore. It is Sunday, July the 25th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, what is bipartisanship to you in politics? What does that term mean to you? I'm going to talk about bipartisanship and look at it with a lens that perhaps you may not have heard or looked through. Coming up next. Mr. President, have you made any kind of decision, sir, on, uh, on what action you might take concerning Libya? Uh, there's no What I wanted to do, and the reason that I mentioned the golf, was a kind of a cue to the fact that when we have any moments when you really would like to use that on me, there's a golf ball for my baby. <laughs> oh, okay. You mean I can take my vent out by swinging at Ronald Reagan? So the name? And that was uh, some audio from a moment in the White House, in the Oval Office, uh, President Ronald Reagan, the Republican, and the rather stentorian voice that you just heard in uh, also there was Tip O'Neill, the Democratic Speaker of the House. That was back in December of 1981. And the reason I start there, and I hope you're well on this Sunday, dear listener, is because The focus of this episode is bipartisanship and what do you think that bipartisanship means in politics, particularly in US politics, but in in any country's politics? What does that mean? And what's your take on it? And so that audio that you heard there was from a photo op between these two men. Now, President Reagan at that point had just begun the, well, just the first year of his first term in office. And if memory serves me correctly, it, this was the same year 1981 that there was an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. I don't remember, I believe it was 1981. It may have been a little bit later. So a lot had been happening in that first year of Ronald Reagan's term In office, of course, he served two terms as president of the United States. But the reason why I play that audio that you just heard was, and let me give you some background on it. The two men there, Reagan and O'Neill, were in the Oval Office. And Tip O'Neill was having a birthday. And so President Reagan had invited him to the White House, to the Oval Office specifically in the White House, to exchange gifts or to give him a gift. And I think Tip O'Neill gave him a gift as well. Or gifts were given to both of them by a third party. And then uh, Reagan handed Tip O'Neill something. And you can find this on YouTube as well. And Reagan handed Tip O'Neill a gift for his birthday. And you think his birthday was on December the 9th, I believe, of 1981. That was you know his birthday fell um on that date and so they're exchanging gifts and you may have heard um tip o'neill say what do you mean i get to swing take a yeah i'm paraphrasing take a shot at the president and it's kind of like you and this is i think the same year that president reagan had been um had been shot i mean if you are of a certain age you will remember that um and that was also the same time that James Brady, the White House press secretary, had been severely injured and and paralyzed from the waist down, um, and uh, for the rest of his days, obviously. And it was a it was a pretty that was a really horrible, horrible time, um, and you know, unfortunate, unfortunately, these kinds of events are not new in. United States history or in United States politics, and so um, it was quite a year, nineteen eighty-one. You know, Reagan had not covered himself in any glory. His legacy is not of being the great communicator; is being of someone who committed, uh, quite frankly, with his help of his cronies, committed a lot of crimes and committed treason. By the way, to get into the White House, ooh, but don't tell anybody about that. You know, when he when he negotiated as a non-elected person with with Iran and told them look you know if you hold off releasing these hostages until after the election I'm I promise you that I will get you a better deal and that is exactly what happened and then you had the whole arms for hostages you know Iran Contra event that happened just you know a few a little short time after that and You know, the whole thing with I don't recall and all that. I mean, I'll never forget that. Reagan on the witness stand claiming that he didn't remember anything. And it's true, you know, I mean, maybe that was true because, of course, he developed Alzheimer's. So 1981 was rather turbulent and then the the 80s were turbulent and it was a disastrous two terms under Ronald Reagan. One of the worst presidents that this country has ever had. In fact, I would submit one of the most consequential presidents in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons than we that we've ever had in the United States. If you really study the history of those eight years, that is exactly what Reagan was. He killed unions. He killed off the fairness doctrine through the through the uh, FCC in nineteen hundred and eighty-seven. He again, as was involved in treason before he even got into the office in nineteen hundred and eighty, and really hurt Jimmy Carter in that way. Undercut him because Jimmy Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa, listen to me, Jimmy (laughs) Hoffa, although Jimmy Hoffa was certainly a figure around the 80s as well. But Jimmy Carter is who I'm I'm trying to mention here. Jimmy Carter had essentially secured um, an agreement or a deal with with um, with the hostages. It was something that or at least would have benefited him if I I remember the exact history. And then Reagan completely undercut that. And this is not someone who was even in any political office at the time. And like Nixon, roughly, what, 20 plus years or less than 20 years before him, only 12 years before him, another Republican commits treason. I played you the tape with uh, LBJ on the phone to the Republican Senate leader Everett Dirksen and uh, that infamous phone call in 1968, just a few days, October 68, before the presidential election of that year Remember LBJ Earlier in the year of 68 Said he is not going to seek the nomination After all the stuff that happened with Vietnam And the Gulf of Tonkin He was very unpopular um, at that point Even though he had um, signed the Voting Rights Act And the Civil Rights Act earlier on In 1964 and 65 VRA in 65 Civil Rights Act in 64 And you know He, he ran his course LBJ And so Um LBJ LBJ and as president was on the phone with Everett Dirksen and you remember LBJ as a part of it. was a part of the Senate was a Senate leader and was the president of the Senate at one point as well uh, when JFK was in office and again this phone call which I've played several times on this podcast over the last year or so if not longer was was a really telling phone call and LBJ says you know Everett that's treason and Everett Dirksen the Republican Senate leader at the time in 68 says, I know, and it's just, it's, it's kind of this resigned, I, I know, you know, it's the tone of his voice, you have to hear it. Um, but the point is, is that these were two people from different parties who had this understanding about what was going on and what Nixon was doing. And Nixon was telling um, the South Vietnamese to walk away from the peace talks in Paris back in 1968, the peace talks that would have ended the Vietnam War, certainly would have ended um, U.S. participation in it, would have ended the war pretty much across the board. And and Nixon said, no, you know, um, if you walk away from this table, I will have something for you. I promise you, just let me get through this election. I'm very confident of my chances. And if you... Step away from this table. I guarantee you I can get you a better deal. And again, it's this deal making that at the detriment of not only the United States, but at the detriment of those brave men and women who honestly were believing in their country and willing to put their lives on the line for their country. And they were being sold out. And Nixon committed treason. Not the first Republican to commit treason, as I've said, but again, that is what was happening. And those two men, LBJ and Everett Dirksen, understood this. Two different political parties, but they both knew what the truth was. And all of this is about power, in my view. Same thing here with Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, just a few years later. Now, yes, it's true that they were good friends. When the cameras are off, or when, sometimes when the cameras were on, and when the heat of battle between the House Speaker, Tip O'Neill, the Democrat from Massachusetts, and the Republican President, Ronald Reagan, the former Democrat, by the way. He started out as a Democrat. A lot of people don't realize that about Ronald Reagan, but he did. And Ronald Reagan began as a, as dem, as a Democrat, and he is from Illinois, was from Illinois, Before his California roots then grew in, you know, because as I've said many times, he was once the governor of this state. So he was governor of the state of California. And then he charted the political course from there that resulted with him getting into the White House. As I've said before about Ronald Reagan, he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild on at least one or two occasions. As you also know, he was an actor, not a good actor at all. Um, A so-called B-movie actor, which I'm, you know, I just think he he wasn't really a a great actor. I mean, my gosh, and the movies he made. Oh, dear. So actors can become president. And we've seen that, haven't we? You know, and and charlatans can become president. And we've seen that the last four years previous to this um, person who was in the White House, the previous person. So. The whole point of going over this in this way, dear listener, is to try to bring about a landscape because both Reagan and O'Neill were good friends. They dueled and they went back and forth, if you will, um, on the political end of things. But they did have a drink and that's not anathema or you know, anything like that, an anomaly in politics. There's plenty of Republicans and Democrats right now in the United States Senate. Right now in politics in the United States, plenty of conservatives and labor people right now in England, who they'll have a drink together. Of course they will in the House of Commons. Well, not inside the House of Commons, although <laughs> there have been stories about that happening. People coming into the House of Commons and you can smell the booze on their breath. That is a thing in England, in the House of Commons. And it was a thing much worse in the earlier days. But because these people... And these people I'm talking about are the politicians I refer to in general may have vigorous and quite heated disagreements on the House floor, the Senate floor, in press conferences, um, on the floor of the House of Commons. It doesn't mean that they don't talk to each other. I think the media portrays a lot of it like that, that they don't talk to each other, that they are bitter enemies. When, in the reality of things, people are going to sit down and have a drink and talk and have dinner. I mean, that is how politics gets brokered. I don't think, again, and forgive me, I hope I'm not sounding too, (laughs) uh, I don't know, patronizing? I, I, I hope not. But you know this, that politics gets brokered this way. Many a deal in business and in politics is made over a dinner, over a couple of drinks. Over dessert, In that famous corner of your lovely restaurant on K Street, the lobbyists, this person, that person, K Street in D.C. I'm talking about basically lobbyists row, lobbyists row is K Street, right? The lobbyists come to town. That's their corner of the world. And so many a deal is made. The sausage gets made in the not the boardroom necessarily, but in the dining room. In the cushy, you know, leather chair, that that old leather, you know, the old leather I'm talking about, that you might get at a steakhouse. And you're eating some steak. I mean, I'm not a steak fan. I know maybe perhaps you are um, or whatever your food of choice is. And you're doing a deal and you're sitting there enjoying your food and you're having your dinner. You have a little glass of wine, whatever your beverage of choice, whether it's alcoholic or non-alcoholic beverage. And you're sitting there and, you know, yum, yum, yum. It tastes good. The drink is lovely. And then you're cutting a deal that affects millions upon millions of people. As you casually carve up your steak and shove it into your mouth. (laughs) I mean, seriously. And it's really about power. And how casual the fate of millions of people can be etched in stone, how casual that power is over a cup of coffee, over a steak, over a meal of some kind, at a restaurant of some kind. While all the noise in the background, all the sounds of waiters taking orders and busboys... Delivering, um, putting plates here and there, and people doing all these things in a restaurant. You've got these two powerful people, or maybe a group of powerful people, excuse me, doing things that will affect the lives of many millions of people in the country. And that's power. That's power. So what is bipartisanship? To me, bipartisanship is several things. One of them is power. Now that may not make any initial sense to you as you hear it. But bipartisanship could mean power. Because when two political parties come together... There is, and they agree on something. Let me just make that qualifier. There's power in that. You've got two political parties. And again, I want to get to to the two political parties part in just a moment. But you've got people from two political parties who have a lot of power and stature like President Reagan did and Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill did. And I know people will focus on the fact that they got along and they did. And people will focus on the fact that they jeweled and butted heads in, in public and, you know, you know, on the speaker's floor or on, before the cameras, except in one of those moments that you heard there. And in other cases, they've been very cordial, but they did get along. But the bottom line is both of these people had a lot of power. And once two political parties agree on something, and then they consecrate that in stone. That's power that is being wielded and effectuated by two political parties, particularly by the the representatives of those two political parties. Tip O'Neill had a lot of power as the Speaker of the House back in the 1980s. A lot of power. Immense power. If I remember correctly... And I'm doing this from memory, not because of anything that I've read. I mean, what you're hearing from me is from memory. So, again, if I do get this wrong, um, I will make sure that um, I let you know. But at the time, the Democrats had the majority in the House, if I'm not mistaken. And Tip O'Neill was then someone who had even more power as a Speaker of the House, because he could really effectuate things. And then, of course, ultimately, Reagan had the last say because he could um, veto something or he could sign something. And then, of course, Congress could ultimately have the last say beyond that because they could override the president's veto. We've seen that happen. It's happened throughout American politics, U.S. politics. But my whole point is, is that bipartisanship equals power. It means that two parties are in lockstep and I want to get to this part about the two parties because bipartisanship also means a consecration of the system itself. That's another thing that bipartisanship means, as far as I'm concerned, is an entrenchment of the system. Now, I don't know that a lot of people think about it that way. And I've not, at least in my political travels and in my um, long indulgence in politics, have ever, ever heard, I've never heard bipartisanship described that way. But as far as I'm concerned, that too is bipartisanship. It is an ironclad Confirmation of the system of these two political parties, who many or some people would say is one party. Now, I wouldn't go quite that far, but what I would say is that these are two parties that represent the system and protect it, and perhaps in that way, people might ex- extrapolate out that this is one party. So, I guess. Where my position is and the position that those who say, well, it's just all one party anyway, I guess our positions aren't really that far apart. (laughs) But it's very clear that there are delineations between these two parties. Yes, they are definitely parties of the system. They are there to protect the system. That's what I think bipartisanship does as well. And I think that's what bipartisanship is in a many, in a great many instances. I'll explain one of those instances A very clear-cut example of this. Right after this. Welcome back. So in the last block, I was talking about bipartisanship as a system. I talked about it as power. I talked about it as a system. And one of the ways in which Bipartisanship is systemic and a confirmation of the very system that is designed to do the very dangerous things and life-killing things that it does. The well-oiled killing machine that I often reference is this particular example I'm about to discuss or at least uh, talk about here with you. And thank you very much for your continued loyalty, your continued loyalty and support of this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe. Please spread the word about the Politocrat Daily Podcast and tell others to subscribe as well. There is also a store. Yes, there is a store for the Politocrat Daily Podcast. It is the dash politocrat.myshopify.com. That's right. That is an online store where you can get merchandise tied to this podcast. All of that merchandise is designed by yours truly. And the Summer Sensations series is here. And you will find some brand new products under that heading, the Summer Sensations series. And one of the latest items is the End the Filibuster t-shirt. And one can be yours right now if you head on down to the-politocrat.myshopify.com and purchase one. They are there waiting for you. So please, head on down to the store, won't you? Thank you. I do want to talk about bipartisanship and an example of what it means. And I said, one, it means power. Two, it means a system being protected and consecrated. And basically... um, promoted and, you know, reestablished, just kind of reinforced. And so an example of that is the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1877. I've spoken about that compromise before on this podcast and on a number of occasions, and I'm going to talk about it here briefly, but to make a point. You want to talk about bipartisanship? The Compromise of 1877, the Hills, the Hills, <laughs> the Hayes Tilden Compromise of 1877. You want to talk about bipartisanship? That was bipartisanship, but it also had horrifying consequences for black people, which goes to the point that I'm making about a system reinforcing itself through two political parties. Now, granted, in 1877, the Republicans were the party of abolition, and the Democrats were the party of enslavement. And in the election of 1876... The election, the presidential election, was essentially, um, I mean, it was too close to call. It was very close. And Rutherford B. Hayes was claiming victory. He was claiming victory. Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, was claiming victory. He was claiming victory. And this went on forever. I mean, this was a really, you want to talk about a drawn-out fight about an election. If you thought that Bush v. Gore... In November and December of 2000 was a fight. You ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, I wasn't around in 1876. (laughs) None of us were. But from history, that was one heck of a fight. And I'm not talking about a boxing match. And when I say one heck of a fight, I'm not talking about it with any glee or reverence either. It was a really rough, intense fight. From what we know. This was a hotly disputed election. Fiercely disputed. And even more disputed than anything that we saw earlier this year and last year. I mean, it wasn't so much that last year and this year was a dispute, It was one person trying to con the entire country. And bully it into changing its mind or changing the result into trying to be a mob boss, this guy. And you know who I'm talking about. That wasn't even hotly disputed. That was about people trying to punk and intimidate election officials into overriding the people. And being tyrannical. And eviscerating any notion of democracy. I mean, we don't have a democracy here in the United States to begin with. People can vote, yeah, but, but, if you are putting any kind of restrictions on a person's ability to vote, then you are absolutely crushing democracy. I mean, just because you don't say you can't vote to them, and in some cases, people do in these political parties, specifically Republicans, right, Just because they actually say, well, you can vote, but you can't pass out water. That doesn't mean that democracy isn't being subverted. That doesn't mean that democracy isn't being crushed. Of course it is. And as I've said, you know, I would make a case to you that democracy has never existed in the United States. Definitely would make that case. And I really believe that. I mean, it's existed for a very small group of people. White rich, male property owners. They've never had their rights subjugated. Never, never, never had. They're never in danger of that. They're the only group who have never been stripped of their voting ability. Ever. Ever. But I want to get to this compromise of 1877 because in 1876, that presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes the Republican, and Samuel J. Tilden, the Democrat, was the, probably the most hotly disputed election in the history of the United States in terms of presidential elections. And the way they decided to solve this, the two of them, was not necessarily over a friendly chat. It was over a deal, the compromise, which said, okay, we're going to give you Rutherford B. Hayes and the we are the people who were in a negotiation on behalf of the Democratic candidate, Samuel J. Tilden. And his representatives were saying, okay, you know what? Mr. Tilden has agreed... To give you Mr. Hayes. Occupancy of the White House. But in order for you to sit in the White House. As president of the United States of America. You are going to have to give something up. And that. Will have to be. The federal troops. That. Occupied. Several states. In the south of the country. The federal troops that line states throughout the south were going to have to go. And if you do that, then you can have the White House, Rutherford B. Hayes. You can have it all you want. As long as you take your federal troops out of there. You've got to take the troops out of the South. Every last federal government soldier has got to leave. You know what was going on during 1876 and 1877? Reconstruction. I'll say it a little bit louder for those of you in the back. Reconstruction. Reconstruction gave black men in particular a new lease on life, if you will, in the post enslavement era, the post Civil War era. And for about seven or eight years, roughly, Reconstruction provided a lot of political power, a lot of economic power to black men. And the political power saw black men in the Senate, black men in state houses, black men being able in many cases to actually get the vote in some of those cases. And Reconstruction, if I'm not um, wrong about this, and I don't think I am, presented those kinds of powers for black men. Black women did not have those powers. This is why I keep saying that it wasn't until 1965 that black women got the right to vote in the United States. And I know someone's going to tell me, well, there is no right to vote in the Constitution. Well, that's true. It's not officially enshrined in any wordage, in verbiage in the Constitution. However, it is implied, right? Because the 14th and 15th Amendment, 15th Amendment particularly, says that the right to vote shall not be abridged by race, sex, national origin, da-da, da religion, da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da, da-da. I think that's the, that's the 15th Amendment. So that's where the implied right of the right to vote comes from, even though it, it's not officially enshrined that says, this, you have the right to vote. It just says voting cannot be prohibited based on these things. And the Republican Party for the last 60 plus years, has been going on doing exactly that. They've been trying to abridge the vote. Not even trying, they've been doing it. And they've been targeting race, national origin. Hello? Asians not being able to vote in some places with these anti-voting bills. Black folk. Lord knows we haven't been um, allowed to vote. All of these bills and thanks to the United States Supreme Court. And that's what I want to also get to for in a short little bit, I promise. But I want to get back before I go off too far off the blocks here, back to this compromise of 1877, because reconstruction was going on and there was a new lease of political power for black men. And ooh, we can't have that now. We can't have those black men having all this power. <sighs> I'm so scared. And so we had Juneteenth in 1865, In June the 19th of June 19th in 1865, you know about the story of Juneteenth and how violent it was because people have to understand what the history was and white people in the United States just would not accept that black people were freed from enslavement. They just would not accept it. Everybody who was white, who was not an abolitionist, and that was a whole lot of people, that was most of the country, would not and refused to accept that black folk were freed individuals, free persons, F-R-E-E, free persons. They just couldn't handle that. And so they got violent and they started to kill black people. They started to massacre black people. We then got to 1921, right? Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma. The race massacre. Or I would say the white killing of black people. Let's get it specific so everybody knows what we are talking about here. I like specificity. Don't you? (laughs) I know really. I'm not trying to be funny here. I like specificity. So that we all know what we are talking about. We all understand. Right? We all are clear. We don't need the buzzwords. Those, those are amongst the most toxic things. Buzzwords, you know, innuendo. I mean, I know there's some fun to some of that. Ooh, innuendo and double entendre. I know, right? But this is not something that we need to have innuendo about. This is, we need to put this spell this out on front street. And we need to be clear so that there is no misunderstanding. And we need that in communication, right? We need to be clear of each other and honest enough and direct enough with each other so we know where we stand. And there were so many massacres of black people around that time period. And this was before Reconstruction, during Reconstruction, and after Reconstruction. And let's have it absolutely right, dear listener, These kinds of attacks and massacres have never really ended at all. Even now in 2021, they really haven't. The police are the ones doing it. Right? And that's been going on for hundreds of years. The enslavement patrols were the first thing. And then police evolved out of enslavement patrols, which explains partly one of the reasons that the police come in here not looking to solve any crime, but looking to start crime, looking to attack black people. Instead of just going about your business and oh, if there's a crime in progress, you jump on it. There, are police. There are a great many police who go around looking to start something, looking to find something, looking to plant something. Right? It's not crime prevention, it's crime facilitation. That's what it is, crime facilitation. But what I'm trying to get to again is this whole thing. This happened in circumstances. this 1876 compromise, uh, excuse me, 1877 compromise over the 1876 election happened with a very, very serious, serious situation going on. All of this violence was going on. Black folk were Black men enjoyed a lot of power. The Emancipation Proclamation, which didn't get enforced until at least two years later, right, as I've talked about, was one of the things that pushed this. And then, of course, the long fight of the abolitionists, the John Browns of the world, the Harriet Tubman's of the world, the Frederick Douglasses of the world. These were the people that geared up to get these kinds of things going and changes so that you did have freed black persons. And you had black men in particular, because, again, black women didn't have any political power back in 1876. But in that post-enslavement era, and some people would say that enslavement has never really ended. If you read the book by Mr. Um, Blackman, Slavery by... Another name, Douglas Blackman, last name B-L-A-C-K-M-O-N. You will know that, and he documents for this, that enslavement in this country of black people continued into the 1950s. And some people would say it's continuing now. And in some ways, I don't necessarily disagree with him. Because just look at what's going on. Look at what's going on. It doesn't have to be the actual shackles. But when you look at Crystal Mason. Crystal Mason. In prison for five years. Because she tried to vote. Because she tried to vote. She was told that she could. By Texas officials. And you now put her in prison. In the federal prison sentence. And now another sentence for five years. I mean. What is that akin to? Her freedom is being restricted. Right, so what? Where is that different from actual enslavement? I mean, she's obviously not being whipped, but does that really matter when you're looking at what's going on, and you're looking at the fact that there's a brother in Texas, also in Texas, Hervis Rogers, who could be serving another a possible twenty-plus years behind bars for trying to vote. And then you've got some white boy out here in D.C. who gets eight freaking months for a terrorist attack on the Capitol, on this country, back in January 2021, January 6th. How does that guy get eight freaking months for violence and all this as part of a terrorist attack on the country? And Crystal Mason gets five years for trying to vote when a Texas voting official told her that she could vote. And Hervis Rogers, 20 years potentially plus, in prison for trying to vote. How, how, is that, how is that not some kind of enslavement when you think about it? But I want to just get back again to 1876 and 1877. Because all of this power was being traded back and forth. And you could have just put them at a steakhouse. You could have put them at Musso and Frank's in Los Angeles, California, which I think is still open. I think it's 100 and some odd years old now, 101, 102 years old, Musso and Frank. You could have put them there. I've been to Musso and Frank. It's quite a place. It's one of these venerable old steakhouse type places, right, where you go in and you've got those plush leather, the leather I was speaking of, these kind of old leather, you know, the kind of maroon colored. Leather, burgundy, wine-colored leather. You know, you sit on it, it makes a squeaky sound. You know, whatever that sound is. I can't can't replicate it very well. And it's an old place. You can smell the history in that place, right? 100 plus years old, Musso and Frank. If you're ever in Los Angeles, whenever it's safe to travel again, really, you want to go there and check that out. It's quite a scene. had all the celebrities in there. And I think some celebrities still go there. A lot of deal-making gets done there. A lot of Hollywood agents, a lot of anyone who's anyone, producers, directors, actors, as I've said, they go in there and they, and celebrities, they go in there and they have a meal. They do deals in there. And you could have put both Tilden and Hayes in a Musso and Frank back in 1876. In 1877. And removing those troops, those federal military personnel was the death knell of reconstruction and th- and thus the death knell of black folk and political power and economic power. And that is a very tenuous existence for us as black people. To literally have your future Being decided by two men, two white men. As I said earlier, people signing deals in a restaurant that affect millions upon millions of people. In between bites of steak, in between chewing steak, digesting steak, you have in the palm of your hands, on your fingertips, the fate of so many millions of people in your hands. And again, that's why bipartisanship is power. And also that's why bipartisanship, as so dramatically illustrated in the Compromise of 1877, is about consecration of a system and keeping that system going. Because if the Republicans and the Democrats are representative of that system, and they are, it therefore then follows that when they do deals, it is basically a handshake in blood. And it is about allowing us a, a system that exploits black folk, that genocides Native Americans, that suppresses women of all groups to continue to thrive. And in this particular case of the Compromise of 1877, oh my goodness me, It's an absolute reinforcement of the system at the detriment and to the detriment of black people. Rutherford B. Hayes did not reject that compromise. He basically said, how high do you want me to jump, Sam? How high do you want me to jump? I mean, I'm sure he almost said Uncle Sam to him, probably called him Uncle Sam. Call Sam, you know, boom, Samuel J. Tilden. And, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes, power, the White House. So he wanted power. And the next time you hear people describe women as power-hungry and politically ambitious, you better check back with Rutherford B. Hayes. Because if ever there was an example of being power-hungry and politically ambitious, it was in Rutherford B. Hayes. You could look in a dictionary back in 1877. And you would see Rutherford B. Hayes' name there. Ooh, wasn't he an eager beaver? Yes, sir, boss. I'm in the White House now. Fuck the troops. Send them out. Let them leave the the South. And what do you think is going to happen when we pull the feds out of the South? Hello? You know what happened. All hell broke loose. And basically, enslavement continued, and black folk were being murdered left, right, and center. massacres all over the country. I keep telling you they were over I mean there was at least two hundred to three hundred massacres. You want to talk about um Greenwood in Tulsa, Mississippi, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, excuse me, in 19 hundred and twenty one you ain't seen nothing that was That was one of the later massacres. Shoot. There were massacres all after reconstruction, oh my god, even be- as I've said before, even before reconstruction, there were massacres of black folk by white people all across the United States. I once on an episode, probably about two months ago now, nearly two months ago, I read out about twenty five of them just 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 twenty five of all of the massacres that happened in the United States, and they're not even. People only most people in this country do not even know about them. And Lord knows they're not being taught in schools, especially in the South. So these compromises, or this compromise of 1877, had severe consequences. And that's a form of bipartisanship. That's a form of agreement. That's what bipartisanship is in, in some way. It's, it's agreement, it's assent, it's a consecration of a political system that is very powerful and very deadly to black people because we've seen that and it continues to be. And that's the truth of all of this is that as much as Lincoln didn't care about black people and whether they were enslaved or not, nor did Rutherford Hayes, And these are the so-called people who are belonging to a party of abolitionists, the party that supported so-called supported freedom and yet Rutherford B. Hayes was willing to trade that in with his democratic opponent for power I said earlier this is about power too it may be most about power as much as it is about consecrating a system my turn my turn I want power power My turn, my turn, I want power. But those black people over there, Well, they'll just have to suffer while I get my power shot. And that's what happened. All across the country, especially in the South, but across the nation, black folk caught hell. And when haven't we caught hell? When haven't we caught hell in these United States? I think the compromise of 1877 represents the most powerful example of what bipartisanship is. And yet, when you hear the word bipartisanship being spoken of today by President Joe Biden, for example, you might tend to think it has a different meaning. But I really would like to know what people think that means, because to me, bipartisanship is also about compromise, which I've laid out here over the last few minutes. It's about consecrating a system. It's about compromise. It's about power. That's what bipartisanship is. It's all of those things I've just mentioned. And so when you hear President Biden, as he did last week, and I really criticize him very strongly, or maybe not even strongly enough, about that really poor town hall that he did with Don Lemon of CNN last week in Ohio. And he said, well, about, about voting rights, and I talked about this too. Well, you know, the filibuster, well, we don't want to destroy the Senate. We don't want to destroy Congress. We'll never get anything done. And I'm sitting there saying, and maybe some people other than myself are saying, I'm sure they are thinking this. Well, let it, let, let it come to a standstill because nothing's going to change until the rights of black people actually happen. And the other way that's going to happen is, is that you're going to create, have to create some kind of upheaval, right, from the inside and perhaps from the outside as well, as history shows us, to effectuate change, to get the kinds of things that you know that to have a better country, you need to have. And so when you hear President Biden last week, when I heard him say, oh, well, we need to... Uh, bring Republicans along with us. Why? Why do you need to bring Republicans along with you? I, I, I don't understand it. These Republicans are showing you that they don't want bipartisanship. I mean, Mitch McConnell has talked about bipartisanship for as long as he's been in the Senate, which is what, a long-ass time, 40 years? He was in the House before that, I think, But but, but his political career has spanned more than 40 years. And, I, you know, he's said this forever. And he's not behaved in any bipartisan way. Bipartisanship in this day and age tends to mean compromise. But it also, again, it means power. It means reinforcement of a system that is toxic as hell. That is a well-oiled killing machine. But I think the way that the media advertises, or oh, the politicians in the media, or the media itself looks at bipartisanship is very kind of benign. Like I said... Several times, you know, you've had these people meeting each other behind closed doors. What's going on in there? And as the saying goes, and I've heard so many people say this, and it's a saying I've heard for a long time. If you are not at the table, you are on the menu. And that is the truth. So what are these Republicans and Democrats who talk in their bipartisan meetings talking about? What are they negotiating I mean, I told you about Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel J. Tilden back in 1877. But what about the Republicans and Democrats of 2021 and beyond? What are they negotiating behind closed doors? When President Biden invited the Republicans in the Senate and that so-called bipartisan coalition that included Joe Manchin, the Democrat, and Kirsten Cinema, the Democrat. Those two senators. With this group of Republicans, Bill Cassidy and uh, Lisa Mikowski, all senators and a number of other people. I think John Thune might have been in there. So, I, I, you know, what were they talking about in there? And then President Biden comes out and they're all standing behind him. Yes, well, we spoke about the infrastructure bill. We spoke about this. And by the way, even he broke off the talks about the infrastructure bill because these republicans wouldn't agree to any of it i mean bipartisanship as i said for republicans is garbage they don't care about bi- they don't care about bipartisanship so why is president biden talking about bringing along republicans and it's about maintaining a system in my view oh i know you're so cynical omar oh you're so cynical <laughs> i don't know i don't listen This is, I mean, what else would it be? President Biden has been a placeholder forever. And that's how he's managed to survive in politics for 50 years. Don't rock the boat. Maybe gently bend the boat. I don't know how you can bend a boat, but, you know, that's the first thing that came into my mind. You remember that song from the if you're of a certain age, you remember the song Rock the Boat. Don't rock the boat baby. Don't tip the boat over. You remember that song. Some of you do, right? Love that song too. Now I almost want to sing it, but I don't almost want to sing it. (laughs) Oh dear. But that's what President Biden is. Why are you talking about Oh, we've got to bring Republicans along. And that was the most one of the most astonishing lines of that town hall last week was when he said that. We've got to bring Republicans along. And they don't want to be brought along, Mr. President. They want power. It's that simple. They don't want to be brought along to anything. They want power. They want control. That's what they want. They don't want bipartisanship. If they wanted bipartisanship, they would have voted to debate having a bipartisan commission for January 6th for the terrorist attack on that date earlier this year. They refused. If they wanted bipartisanship, they would have agreed to have a debate to vote on the For the People Act. They didn't. They voted not to even debate that. We don't even want to debate. We don't even want to vote on it. No, we're not doing it. They want power. They don't want bipartisanship, these Republicans. And President Biden is part of a system. It may be in some of the bygone stages of the system... He is part of that system that brought you the Tip O'Neills and the Ronald Reagans. And it's a system that will evolve to its real core, which is its destruction of a country. Because this system destroyed the country to begin with. When Native Americans, because it's their country, you know, had their country intact. And then you have these people, these white people come in, these white men come in and destroy it and destroy the lives of Native Americans, genocide them, and then try to build something on the destroyed land and on a genocided people, and then shunt them off to things called reservations. And how insulting is that, to say the very least? And then you try to put a system that's so unstable and violent and shaky into governance and operation. And then at the end of it all, after all of the bloodshed, all of the murders of black people, all of the killings, you then want to bring Republicans along. And the Republicans are architects of policies that have kept black people down forever. And Democrats have signed along with it. And I just, you know, I just, it's just, it's just absolutely bipartisan. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.